the Brussels Report podcast. Welcome to a new episode of the Brussels Report podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Kleppe. I'm the editor-in-chief of BrusselsReport2.eu. And uh, I'm very happy uh, to have as my guest uh, today, uh, Daniel Dalton. Uh, Daniel is a former British uh, Conservative uh, MEP um, in the UK. Uh, before that, he was a rather successful uh, cricketer. Uh, and he also is at the moment the outgoing um, CEO of Bridge Cham, the British uh, Chambers of uh, Commerce. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Peter. Great to, great to be here. Well, it's good to have uh, a Brit again at the Brussels Report podcast. I only had one um, so far. Uh, so, um, And of course, uh, at the issue of the day um, is, of course, Brexit. Uh, Brexit, uh, I always said, was going to be eternal... Uh, negotiation and uh, so far that has proven to be uh, uh, correct. Uh, the big sticking issue is of course uh, Northern Ireland. Eh? So there's the um, the Brexit deal governing the trade between the two blocks, but then there's the specific protocol, the Northern Irish protocol, which basically foresees that uh, Northern Ireland, a part of the United Kingdom, uh, remains um, in the EU single market in the sense that it takes over all the rules of the EU. Uh, but of course, uh, then in return, um, you need to have checks um, to to look to what extent these rules are being respected. Now, because we don't um, want a hard border on the island of Ireland between the Republic and Northern Ireland uh, for the sake of the, uh, the peace process, um, the UK conceded to checks in the Irish Sea, as it's called, uh, so this is the water between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So this is basically the EU uh, managing to negotiate um, checks uh, inside UK territory uh, in that Irish uh, Sea. Now, um, during the course of 2021, um, the UK has been dragging its feet to properly implement all of these checks. I understand they have implemented some of it. Um, and uh, the big debate is now how to sort of um, uh, water down these checks to make sure that it's not too disruptive because there's a real problem with goods um, arriving uh, from Great Britain into uh, Northern Ireland. The Commission has made some proposals. On top of that, uh, there's a second issue uh, that I want to discuss, which is um, that if there are disputes between the UK and the EU, a relatively traditional arbitration arrangement is foreseen to sort of sort out these uh, differences with representatives of both sides taking part. However, specifically for Northern Ireland, the top EU court, the European Court of Justice based in Luxembourg, is the competent arbiter. And the UK government is currently trying to renegotiate that. It says it's not fair that your uh, top court is the um, is the arbiter specifically for uh, Northern Irish uh, matters. Uh, so um, the the EU is of course less than happy to make concessions on that front. So uh, please tell me, Daniel, um, what's your uh, what's your take on all of this, and and is there any um, risk that this may all escalate and lead to a uh, breakup uh, of the uh, of the Brexit deal? Yeah, I mean, well, I think you've, you've you've explained it quite well there. I mean, they, the, 
I think there's two problems. I mean, there's two problems in the two sides are still talking past each other um, and Northern, on Northern Ireland and possibly don't understand each other's position. I think, you know, from the EU side, they quite reasonably say, well, the UK signed this deal. So therefore, you know, it should be committed to this deal. Um, but I think from the EU side, there is a misconception that the deal itself is enough to ensure peace in Northern Ireland. Uh, and and it isn't. I mean, the, the, the difficulty is that the... Um, the deal ensures that there's no border, no hard border between uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is a key objective for the EU, but also a, a, an important objective for the UK. I mean, the UK wants to uh, mm-hmm. keep ensure that the Good Friday Agreement remains, which allowed an open border between uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland and between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And I think this is where there's the problem in that the deal as it is constructed effectively puts a border between the UK and uh, Northern Ireland. Now, that is not, um, well, the problem with this then is the way Northern Ireland community is, 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 um, exists is that you need to bring on both the two communities. You need to bring on the, the nationalist community, but also the unionist community in Northern Ireland. And there is a big feeling within the unionist community in Northern Ireland that this deal has broken the Good Friday Agreement because it has put significant barriers between uh, the UK and Northern Ireland, particularly in the way that has been interpreted by the EU in terms of the interpretation from the EU has been very strict, particularly with regards to food products. Mm. And I think where this becomes the problem is identity and food, culture and food are very closely linked. And actually, you could probably solve a lot of the problems here if you could could solve the food, SPS, the the cytosanitary food standard issues uh, in terms of uh, goods moving across uh, from the UK to the EU. Um, Because without that, there will be a feeling in, uh, particularly in the unionist community in Northern Ireland, that the deal as it stands effectively incorporates Northern Ireland much closer into the Republic. And that as things stand at the moment, is not uh, well. It, it's not the proven will of the people of Northern Ireland, first of all, but particularly isn't of the unionist community. So, um, where we stand is a situation where actually the deal, as it stands on Northern Ireland, could be provoking, uh, you know, the peace to to, to be challenged, uh, which is very different from the rhetoric I think you hear from many in the EU, where there is a belief that the deal itself is the guarantor of peace. And I don't think that's the case. So um, this is the background to really why the UK is 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 challenging it. Now, it's completely reasonable from the EU to turn around and say, well, you know, the UK signed that deal. Um, but ultimately, it signed that deal because that was really the only option on the table to, to get Brexit um, uh, done in the time frame that Boris Johnson had promised after he had he had won an election very strongly so mm. that's the challenge now i do think there is a way out of this though um because it is like i say the food standards and the sps issues are the the crux of this and i do think that actually if both the eu and the uk and and also the us actually i think is is it has a role in this as well um all give a little bit i do think that the deal here that this could be solved relatively quickly and that would be along the lines of the uk sort of agreeing uh, to do an SPS agreement with the EU, um, given the fact that UK food law still is the same as EU food law. I mean, the, the UK hasn't diverged on any of its food law. That should be able to be done relatively easily. But the EU would also need to give on future changes to food law, um, i.e. because at the moment its position is that any future EU change to cytosanitary or food standards, the UK needs to 
mirror those changes. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't grant equivalence effectively of the standards. Um, however, I think the EU... Sorry, would make... can I interrupt? Is the EU demanding that the, the UK keeps its standards alive, uh, aligned for the whole UK or only for Northern Ireland? So, for, well, what I'm talking about in terms of the SPS agreement is would need to be for the whole UK because otherwise, how realistically could the EU check and govern the goods coming from you know somewhere in the uk to the uh to northern ireland meet eu standards when other food coming from the same place might not so i think ultimately it would need to be an sbs agreement probably that covered uk food standards in general but this could be done oh. i think um because the standards are the same there isn't a huge demand yeah. in the uk from the population to move the standards but the problem the sticking point, I think, is future standards. Um, whereas the UK would like a sort of equivalent system, i.e. where if the end goal is the same, even mm. if the actual rules are slightly different, the end goal uh, would be recognised as the same. So to me, this this would be the UK giving up on its opposition to an SPS agreement, the EU giving up on its opposition to uh, the UK aligning to future EU rules. And I think the US plays a part in this as well, because the reason the UK wants the freedom to, to diverge is so that it could do a, a trade deal with the US, uh, of which food might be a part of that deal. And I think that the US, which, of course, is a guarantor also of the Good Friday Agreement, it was very deeply involved in that in the first place, uh, would probably need to reassure the UK that this would not mean uh, that the UK couldn't do a trade deal with the US. And actually, uh, President Biden has intimated that over the summer. So I do think despite all the rhetoric and you know the 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 temperature being raised on uh, on Northern Ireland there is a way out of this. And I think if the if food can flow relatively freely between the UK and Northern Ireland then that will uh well it will dial down the heat on a lot of the the the, the problems and the the potential trouble that you could have there. Well, yeah, and like you say, it's not as if the the UK public is not particular about uh, about its food. Eh? Let's all uh, remember the, the the horse meat uh, uh, scandal and these things. I mean, um, emotions always get very uh, heated in the UK whenever there's a, a food issue. So, and also, it's not like when when people from the EU twenty seven visit the UK that they're afraid to eat certain things. You know. Uh, so, so uh, I mean, the, the natural way out, I think, is just to basically trust each other's uh, uh, standards. But, but yes, and that's the problem at the moment, of course, because of the the, the heated way that the, the Brexit has sort of happened over the last couple of years. Is I think there's not a huge amount of trust between the two teams, you know, the teams in London, the teams in Brussels, and really to get something solved on Northern Ireland, you need trust. Um, so there will need to be a bit of work building that trust. Um, but I am relatively, I, I don't think it's insurmountable, um, uh, you know, despite all the rhetoric. All right. Well, good. Let's maybe move to another topic then, uh, which is related to food as well, which is uh, fish. Fish is in every country um, a very um, attractive topic for politicians to posture on. And, uh, of course, this is no different with uh, with Brexit. And we've seen uh, the issue of French fishermen or certain French fishermen no longer given the right to, to fish in Jersey waters. Uh, I think Jersey is not exactly a part of the UK. It's like, uh, well, legally it has a special status. Uh, I understand it was not even part of the EU. Please correct me if I'm wrong. 
the thing is, um, these fishermen are no longer to be able to fish there, or some of them, uh, because uh, the UK or Jersey is claiming they haven't um, complied with the right paperwork. And in response, France is going, let's say, full nuclear, uh, even threatening of threatening to cut off uh, UK electricity supply. Uh, people accuse uh, French President Macron of playing this game um, because he wants to be seen as strong in in Normandy and Bretagne ahead of the ahead of the election. Um, what's your What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think you're. You're probably quite accurate there in in that description. I mean, we know that farming and fishing is obviously a huge part of the French French political culture, um, and that um, you know, therefore, it is it is always going to be important in the run up to a presidential election in France. I think you know we all recognise that, but I do think the reality of this is it's slightly been overblown. Um, Jersey, you know, as you say, isn't isn't part of the UK. It's a crown dependency, so it's sort of the UK is responsible for its. Um, sort of uh, defense policy and that but but Jersey controls its own affairs uh, yeah. in every other way I think Jersey took advantage of the ability to re uh, reassign licenses to French fishermen as as was needed uh, in the bigger fishing agreement um, uh, the TCA part the fishing part of the TCA um, and you know I think none of us really know to what extent uh, those renewals are genuinely, um, some of those renewals are being rejected because there is no proof that the, the, those fishermen don't have proof that they had previously fished in those waters. I mean, the vast majority of the licenses have been granted, as I understand. There, there's only a very small proportion that haven't because the argument from, from the Jersey government is that there has not been um, any proof of, of previous fishing that has been given. Now, the French fishermen say that they can't give the proof because many of them don't have the digital systems that are needed and haven't had them historically. So, you know, it's a, it, I don't think it's one that's easily solved by one side being right or wrong, if you see what I mean. It's clearly become a political issue that is far outblown from its actual economic impact. I mean, it's a very small number of fishermen. It's and fishing itself is a very small uh, issue. Um, so I, you know, I, I do think, um, when the political rhetoric is dialed down, uh, that will calm down. But, you know, in the next two or three months, I think you have to see a lot of the French action are focused on on uh, on the election. The reality from a UK side, of course, is that um, because of uh, certain different standards that the EU applies, I mean, much of the fish that have been caught by British fishermen in British waters are just no longer able to enter the European market at all. So um, the fishing community in the UK, I think, and, and the British government is not probably in the mood to do any favours on fishing, given that they feel a little bit hard done by by the application of the rules uh, in the way it's been done from the EU side, which has, has effectively meant that despite an agreement on fishing rights in terms of you know, fishing products and, and getting products into the European market, uh, that has that has been much more restrictive than was expected in the deal. Now, again, I mean, many of your listeners will turn around and say, well, you know, this is obviously, you know, if you leave the EU, you're, you're, you're a third country and you're going to be bound by the third country rules. And that, of course, is correct. But I do think that certainly on the British side from the negotiations, there was a what they felt was an understanding that given the fact that the UK is aligned to EU law, that the EU would take a more flexible approach to to some of this. Now, of course, um, probably if the 
political rhetoric had been different, the EU might have been um, taking a slightly um, more flexible approach. But the reality is the rules are the rules. That That is the other challenge with this. Yeah, well, I think we saw that with um, Scottish salmon uh, exporters, at least at the beginning of 2021 of this year. They, they, were, they seemed to be having some trouble to get their salmon onto the EU market, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't know the exact ins and outs of this, but there are certain standards. Right. Uh, I mean, I, and I don't think it's salmon, but there are certain types of fish that need to be uh, go through certain cleaning processes within an EU-based um, um, uh, facility. Uh, and uh, that is simply... Uh, has not been possible for many of the UK ones uh, because also the UK doesn't have the facilities to do the necessary work on it before it can go into the market in the EU. So it has left many of the British fishermen and many of the British fishing communities that process fish stuck a little bit. Now, this should have been foreseen, to be honest, um, but given how quickly the deal was done at the last minute at the end of last year, uh, it was one of those things that you know, I think from was not properly understood. Uh, and as a result, uh, people have had to make changes. But that, there is a political feeling, I think, in the UK that the EU approach to this has been more restrictive than it needed to be. Now, whether that is correct or not is a different question. But that leads into, okay. I think, some of the mistrust at political level, which then leads into the responses then you have from the French government, which just raises the temperature from everyone, because we've gone a long way from that initial negotiation where everyone you know was hoping or, or, or believing that um two sides that basically have the same rule book and the same standards should be able to have a system where the products can move relatively freely between the two of them and that clearly wasn't uh uh developed in the tca agreement all right thank you and and before we uh we go to more let's say eu domestic matters um one more brexit thing uh financial services um People were saying, oh, there is no deal for financial services, nothing uh, provided uh, or nothing much provided in the, in the deal. Um, what's, your, what's your take on this? How have uh, British financial services been faring since uh, January 1st? I mean, we have a lot of, uh, let's say, hysteric analysis, uh, newspaper articles screaming that X percent of uh, of uh, you know, of stocks is, is no longer being traded in, in London. Uh, but then on the other hand, we've also seen more rosy uh, takes, uh, most notably, uh, I think, last week with the European Commission admitting that um, financial clearing in euros could continue to take place in London for a while longer, which was seen as a, as a UK Brexit uh, victory, so to speak. So, so um, tell me. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a bit of the problem is everything is, is is portrayed in the media as a Brexit victory that justifies Brexit or a Brexit defeat that means that Brexit was a bad thing. Uh, and, and it's obviously much more complex than that. The situation is always more complex than that. I mean, the reality, as I see it on financial services, is the EU has given some sort of adequacy to some elements of financial services in those areas where the EU would be hurt substantially if it didn't give it. Because of the way London has obviously developed as an EU finance hub uh, whilst yes. the UK was in the EU. So um, the way I look at this is, you know, the EU is granting those on a temporary basis until the EU can get itself in a position that it can uh, you know, offer those services domestically without taking a hit uh, in, the, in the greater economy. Now, that makes sense. I mean, you know, 
the way the trade agreement is is the uk is a is a third country it's as distant as canada or or other third countries now so you know i can see it's reasonable for the eu to want to to build up its own um financial services industries the big challenge for the eu is of course london is a global you know hugely influential global financial sector with the the amount of capital that's raised there just the sheer volume of it means that you can't ignore it as a financial center and um i i do think that that is the you know likely to remain the status quo for 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 quite some time in the future simply because europe just doesn't yet and i suspect in the foreseeable future won't have a financial center with that huge amount of capital in one place that can um, that can then um, uh, use that uh, across the uh, across the continent. So I suspect it will remain as it is. I mean, the reality for London, of course, London remains a global centre. It, it has lost uh, in certain elements, certain parts of um, uh, the market in Europe, and that will continue to be the case. But it is picking up uh, markets around the rest of the world, and financial services can move relatively smoothly and quickly. And I think this is probably an area also because of its importance to the UK government, where the UK will um, diverge from the EU rulebook uh, on financial services governance in the future. And that will also mean that the EU and the UK in this area probably will drift apart. I mean, one of the other interesting things, of course, to see is that quite quickly, the ability to deal uh, in Swiss shares, for example, was was, was reactivated in, in, in London, yes. which um, which the EU, of course, has uh, continued to, to, to uh, exclude because of the wider debate that the EU is having with Switzerland. So there are, you know, neg- many negatives. There are some positives for, for London, for, for the situation that it finds itself in right now. And again, the difficulty is the press. If you just read the press, they will they will come from it from one angle that this is either justifying Brexit or justifying why Brexit was a bad idea. And and as we all know, the economy and politics are far more complex than just that. Well, yeah, good. And that brings us to let's say um, the EU's domestic challenges uh, because um, we had this uh, better regulation agenda a number of years ago with. Uh, Dutch Commissioner Frans Timmermans being responsible for it, the EU being big on big and small on small things, that was the idea. Now, uh, the same European Commissioner Frans Timmermans has now morphed into a new role of uh, some kind of a a climate czar, so to speak, uh, as they would say in the States. Um, And his European Green Deal can't be radical enough. I mean, he made these proposals for a new European Green Deal. Um, and I personally think this is quite symptomatic for, you know, um, the way the EU is going about this. The better regulation agenda was, I think, seen as some kind of a concession to the British. And now that they're gone, well, uh, do we really have to make all those efforts to become dynamic and everything? So, so especially the von der Leyen Commission seems to be going hard on regulation, uh, not particularly friendly to, to, uh, to innovation. I mean, that's, that's sort of my, um, you know, my, my, my take on that. I mean, do, do you agree with that or, or, or um, yes, where's the, yeah. is there a problem here? Yeah, very much. I mean, I, again, I agree with your, your, your take on that. I mean, the, the, the better regulation agenda was nothing really, uh, you know, on the ground. I mean, it was it was a, a nice strategy, but it, it didn't do anything on the ground. 
And I think mm. partly the problem is, of course, the way law is made in the EU, where you have so many actors and you have such a long, detailed process where, you know, you have all of the members of the European Parliament can, can amend it. You've got 20, 27 member states trying to, to find a common ground and then everyone sitting together in a trilogue trying to get uh, a political agreement, not necessarily an agreement for what's best in terms of regulation, but an agreement that the three institutions can support. Um, and so it's always unlikely in, in my eyes that you're going you're gonna to get better regulation in the EU. And I think one of the other problems, big problems, is the way the EU approaches risk in general. So, you know, I, I think this has started really with the REACH uh, chemical legislation, but you know, is now so deeply involved in in, in, in the EU approach to all um, uh, regulation is that uh, it takes a hazard-based approach, uh, i.e. if, uh, you know, if there's a hazard within a chemical or within a foodstuff or within a pesticide or one of these um, types of things, then it doesn't matter of the actual risk that is posed by using that ingredient in a certain way. Um, they should automatically have significant risks on the, um, significant restrictions or be banned um, that approach I think uh, is the biggest problem uh, to uh, having better regulation in general in the EU and the problem with this of course and you see it across the board it's not just in chemicals or pesticides or food you see it on um, you know uh, testing in general new products you see it now in the DSA and the, the DMA where there's always this trying to eliminate a potential hazard in whatever it is, rather than actually looking at what is the real risk on the ground of uh, allowing something. Uh, and I think this is, you know, it's always been a problem uh, for the way the EU um, does its legislation. And I think uh, the challenge for the EU is, does the fact that you have a unified single market of 450, 500 million people negate the fact that it's hard, it's more difficult and more costly to do business and innovate in Europe because of this regulatory framework. And up to now, probably the balance has been about, you know, about even the, the, the hazard based approach and the, the, the overregulation that you do see quite often in Europe has been balanced by the fact that you've got a single market, an internal market. The question going forward in the future is, does that internal market stay as unified as it is at the moment. I think without the UK, there are going to be real questions as to uh, whether the single market remains a single market. And you already see that in, for example, the Digital Services Act, where there is a demand from a couple of member states to go to a country of destination principle for platform services rather than the country of origin. Now, that means that instead of if you've got a digital platform that's based in Ireland and you sell into all of the European countries at the moment, you're under the Irish law not under the law mm -hmm. of the individual countries where the consumers are. What the proposal, and I don't think it will happen in this Digital Services Act, but it's clearly you know, uh, developing, uh, is that you would have to comply with the rules in each of the individual countries where your customers are. That means you're going to need entities and setups and legal representation in all of those countries. So therefore, the, the benefit of the single market uh, is not there. It's 27 separate markets again from yes, from a yes. from a economic perspective, and that to me is um, uh, the biggest challenge. You see it in the Digital Services Act quite clearly, but you can see it across the board in legislation that is passed at national level uh, and at city level and regional level across Europe every day. Is that there are often legislation passed um, that doesn't take into account the wider single market, and I think. The danger is if, if the European Commission are not very strong on protecting the internal market internally, 
then the balance will be out of sync and you know the the extra regulatory cost of innovating in Europe will not become uh, will not be worth it particularly when you have of course the UK now sat on the edge of the EU likely to diverge in some areas particularly on this type of hazard be risk based approach um, and the EU is going to face some economic challenges and as a result of that there should be a question, I think, long term about how does the EU regulate itself? How does it get the balance right? Dealing with all of these concerns that, you know, people have about all sorts of different products um, in a way that does allow innovation to take place um, uh, across Europe. And, and maybe just to add one more point on this, I mean, the EU can get it right quite often. I mean, if you, I think if you look back at the e-commerce directive 20 years ago, which was sort of a ground pace breaking piece of regulation before anyone really sort of understood what the digital economy was going to become and some of the provisions for the e-commerce directive and things like safe harbor that they had in there allowed the growth of a big digital economy in europe and we have a big digital economy in europe now um uh, that was partly because of a piece of legislation that that you know was was put in place relatively quickly and and without lots of potential restrictions because people weren't necessarily seeing the risk then they were seeing the opportunity you know an interesting sort of um piece of legislation happening now which i think is quite similar which is mika which is the um uh the uh, regulation on crypto assets where also actually if if the commission gets this right they're going to create a framework within europe for um uh legitimate um regulation covering crypto assets, which actually could allow the European single market to, to be a leader in what is clearly a, a new and developing field. Uh, and it, we may look back in 20 years time and, and think that's a bit like the e-commerce directive that fostered a, a, um, a market in Europe ahead of the rest of the world. So I think there are benefits. I think there are possibilities, but, but Europe's really got to get this regulatory balance right. Well, it's interesting, of course. Uh, I, I agree with your point in general. I'm not sure I agree with crypto because the whole point of crypto, I think, is to to serve as a as a as a black market currency. <laughs> I mean, at least uh, Bitcoin was completely set up. Um, but but let's see where that evolves. Indeed, um, and and um, yeah, just yes. just on that, sure, just, yeah. just coming on that, because of course this is this is much wider than that because it's. You know, when you're talking about crypto assets, you're not just talking about bitcoins or, or cryptocurrencies. You're talking about uh, potentially central bank, bank um, backed digital currencies uh, put together by, um, uh, you know, put out there by national banks, national governments. You're also talking about the regulation of stable coins or, or currencies that are created by um, companies. Uh, you know, and I think this came because of uh, Facebook and Meta's uh embrace of trying to create their own internal cryptocurrency so uh, the point i'm saying on that is actually what the eu could do by having a a piece of legislation governing this and by governing it and by having that legislation they're legitimizing the whole field um you may well mean that europe is a seed for the legitimate development of crypto assets in the future um and so I, i i think it's worth um watching that and i think sometimes at the moment people think about crypto just in the way that you described it that's not actually the future of crypto well yeah let's let's see i think the jury is still out uh, on that um coming back to to that point you were making um about uh, the eu um let's say no longer compensating the value of the single market 
uh, with um, you know the fact that uh, the regulation is is becoming so expensive. Um, I mean, isn't the problem also that if the EU would be expanding its single market to other areas where it's not properly opened, like for example services, then you know the balance could be a bit. I mean, regula- more regulation and the cost that comes along with it wouldn't be as bad anymore, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the 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 other side of this is the EU needs to complete, well, not complete, but deepen the single market. I mean, I don't think the single market will ever be completed given the nature of, you know, you have 20, 27 different countries that will also have slightly different views on everything. But you um, you do need to deepen the single market. Um, but on services, I you know, it is interesting because the commission is always trying to deepen uh, the services single market and often doesn't get very far. Um, the European Parliament is, you know, in particular a bit wary about this. But now looking outside the EU, you know, from the UK, that actually the services single market is quite better developed than sometimes in inside the EU we think it is. I mean, now try accessing uh, the EU single market for services from outside the EU, the EU from the UK, and you, you suddenly realise that there's a challenge with that, particularly in rec- recognition of qualifications, uh, particularly in a lot of, uh, you know, more regulated industries. Um, so it is, um, uh, there is still a single market in services up to a point. Um, the EU would be best placed, I think, to, to try and uh, deepen that. Um, but the minute you mm-hmm. deepen services, you, you get to the eternal problem um, with the EU single market, which is, you know, if you start, when you start touching on services, you start touching on issues which are very, very important to the psyche of member states and often to, to people in many of the member states. You know, things like, uh, you know, regulating protected services, potentially, uh, you know, things that, that, that can backfire politically quite quickly on you. And this is always the, 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 the challenge, I think, for the more you develop the internal market, the more you're going to have a European answer to everything. And the more you have a European answer, the more you are going to encourage uh, people uh, to uh, choose uh, a view that is not European or that that, that is uh, unhappy with this European answer. And therefore, that's the balance. So yes, in an economic term, I think definitely um, deepening that single market in services is really important. Um, but we have to take into account the political side of this as well. And to a, to a certain extent, most of the a big reason, I think, why the UK voted to leave was because of extension of the single market and rules in the single market into areas that, that people in the UK didn't like and often uh, took, you know, the press particularly took these to the extreme, you know, things like rules on bananas, rules on sausages, you know, uh, rules on... Um, you know, a wide variety of, uh, of stuff, even in services. So I, I do think that's the challenge. But from an economic sense, yes, definitely. Harmonization, yeah. I've always argued that, uh, yes, of course, you need to expand the single market. But basically, instead of harmonization, um, the EU should go for mutual recognition, meaning that if they want to, let's say, make it easier to buy a car in another country, they shouldn't have, let's say, a new harmonized uh, EU regulation on uh, consumer rights, when it comes to buying a car, but basically countries should simply recognize each other's uh, each other regulations. But then, <laughs> I mean, there's not only no trust or no, no sufficient trust between Britain and the EU to to have a thing like that or or to have it at a at a, at a proper um, in a proper way. 
but also between European countries, there is insufficient trust, unfortunately, I would argue, uh, to, to go with that uh, ideal system. Um, Definitely. I mean, I, I think on uh, mutual recognition v harmonization, this is really interesting because I did the um, type approval for cars uh, file in the parliament after the um, the Volkswagen uh, issues. And oh, yeah. that is a mutual recognition system. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to have a mutual recognition system, you've got to have someone checking the authorities in the member states to check that they're in line with the overall rules that govern the mutual recognition, which is, of course, where the commission come in. And that's where the, the challenge always comes is that when you've got a national system for regulating cars, for example, um, that regulates cars in the domestic market, to what extent can the European Commission come in? And to what extent will people accept the European Commission coming in, telling them you know, where they've got it wrong or where they need changes, which apply for the domestic market um, and by knock-on for the international market? Um, and that's a, a fascinating challenge because generally the approach i think certainly from the parliament but also from some in the commission is to move to a more harmonization approach in these rather than the mutual recognition approach across a wide variety of sectors um now that would help for an internal market perspective but i think again from a political perspective uh it would really harm things and of course for for the uk to have mutual recognition you've got to have someone checking that everyone's in line and who does that and that's always been the 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 challenge i think for for the Brexit debate is um, if it's the European Commission doing that, then the UK is not going to accept it. If it's some separate, you know, independent body that's neither British nor European, well, the European institutions are not going to set that up just for the UK. So that, that's where the, the challenge comes. Um, but from a, you know, from a ideological perspective, I certainly agree with you. Mutual recognition is better. But I would also minimize the sort of the, the central checking if, um, if, um, if systems are, are basically trustworthy. I, I mean, I think the whole point of trade is, is trust. And uh, yeah, if we allow Romania into a single market, I think that sort of, yeah, then involves that we also trust uh, food being produced there. You know, also a, lot of, a lot of these checks are also done at the industry level. Eh? Let's not forget that industry checks are typically way, way, way uh, more properly done than, um, than government checks. Um, so... Uh, but well, Definitely. maybe let's let, let's move to the, uh, the the very last point I wanted to ask you. Um, since Brexit happened, um, well, let's say maybe um, twenty twenty, right? When when Britain legally left uh, the European Union, uh, to what extent is a, a change of culture at the EU policy level already visible? Um, in the sense that. Uh, to the the British sort of uh, the British uh, contribution to the EU, which was always uh, to put it in a cliche way, uh, support for free market policies, um, things like that. To, to what extent is that disappearing already? Is that visible already? I think it's a bit early to say actually, because I think I think in the Parliament that's definitely true. I think in the Parliament you do, you you know you you see that sort of. European um, yeah. yeah, in the European Parliament, you see that sort of, um, you know, the, the 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 mitigating approach a little bit that British MEPs across the the board had um, isn't necessarily there. But the impact on the overall EU lawmaking, I'm less sure because I I, I think the Council does um, still play that same role. I mean, the Council tends 
now even now to pull the the parliament back from positions that 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 you know maybe are unworkable i think the real interesting uh thing here is how those other countries who were probably allied on a more liberal approach generally to to, to economic policy um and used to hide behind the uk um and now having to sort of put themselves together and, and be a little bit more vocal themselves to, to try and look after their interests. I think in the digital environment, you see that with the D7 uh, group. Um, and I think it is, um, you know, I think that's where it's going to be interesting to see which countries out of them, you know, really sort of put their head forward and, 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 and you know, are prepared to, 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 to be the ones to, to, to stand up for some of this. Um, I think long term, the real challenge is a little bit, as I mentioned before, is that um, how will the commission be able to deal with, you know, internal uh, threats to the internal market, which in the past, the Brits in all of the institutions would be the biggest advocates uh, uh, for mm. the single market. So would push against those, those, those potential threats very quickly. I'm not sure that that is there in the same uh, extent that it was before. And it's going to be very interesting in the future to see how the commission puts uh, puts up with it. Um, uh, I do think, of course, the, the COVID situation has really upended, um, particularly how the parliament works. And it's, it's quite difficult, I think, to see where the parliament is going to fall at the end of this once we get back to normal. Um, you know, it's a completely new normal because not only you know you don't have the uk meps there but also you you know you whatever changes that have come about from from covid particularly in the structures of of how amendments are voted on and um how how that process is done almost means there's a completely new beginning it's not something that you can easily uh compare to a situation two years ago so i i think some of this is you know too early um clearly the 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 British sort of temperance on some of this, uh, you know, economic um, uh, exuberance that you sometimes have from EU policymakers uh, is going to be um, lacking in the future. But you do look at the big issues that the EU is working on at the moment. Again, you know, I say the digital stuff, but also on the Green Deal stuff. And the UK and the EU are quite aligned on a lot of this stuff. You see the, the debates mm-hmm. in the UK Parliament on what proposals coming out from the British government. They're not that different from anything that's coming from from the European Commission. So, you know, it will be interesting long term to see it. Um, uh, I wonder if the impact might be less than people originally thought. Interesting. Well, uh, Dan Dalton, thank you very much. I thought that was a really fascinating discussion. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And uh, let's stay in touch. eh? Definitely. Thank you. The Brussels Report Podcast.